giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Victoria Guido. And I'm your other host, Will Larry. And I'm your other host, Chad Pytel. We released episode one of this podcast on June 11th, 2012. Now, more than a decade later, we're celebrating this, the 500th episode of our show. In honor of this milestone, Victoria, Will, and I caught up with each of the past hosts of the show, Ben Orenstein, Chris Toomey, and Lindsay Christensen. We chatted about what they're up to now, what they liked and learned from hosting the show and their time at ThoughtBot, and more. First up, Ben Orenstein. Ben was the very first host of the show back in 2012 when he was a developer at ThoughtBot. He is now the co-founder and head of product at Tuple, a remote pair programming tool for designers and developers. Ben, it's great to talk to you again. It's been a while since you and I talked. How have you been? I've been decent. Yeah, it's fun to be back to my roots a little bit. I told uh, some folks that I work with that I was coming back uh, to the pod for the 500th episode, and they were they were stoked. So it's, it's kind of a treat to get to uh, be on these airwaves again. What have you been up to since you left this show and ThoughtBot? Well, I started a company. So uh, I was at ThoughtBot for a while. I think it was seven years. Uh, and I eventually sort of struck out to start my own thing, had a false start or two here and there, and then ended up starting a company called Tuple. And we still exist today, fortunately. Uh, Tuple is a tool for doing remote pair programming. We started off on Mac OS and then wrote a Linux client. And then we're launching our Windows client now. But it's, it's sort of like screen sharing with remote control for developers who are actually writing code and want to have great low latency remote control and who care about screen share quality and that sort of thing. I started that about five years ago with two co-founders. Uh, today, we are a team of 11, I think it is. And it's been going well. Our timing was really great, it turned out. We launched a little bit before COVID. So remote work turned into a lot more of a thing. And we were already in the market. So that, that helped us a ton. It was quite a wild ride there for a bit, but things have uh, calmed down a little lately, but it's still fun. I'm like really enjoying being the co-founder of a software company. It was what I've always sort of wanted to do. And it turns out it actually is pretty fun and pretty great. Although there are, of course, the ups and downs of business ownership. It is, it is never quite as, uh, as calm or relaxing as uh, being an employee somewhere else. You started Tuple instigated by... Full disclosure, ThoughtBot's an early customer of Tuple. We're still a customer. Uh, we use it a lot. I appreciate that. Thank you. If I remember right, you started and were sort of instigated to create Tuple because there was a prior product that then Slack bought and yes. then it started to degrade and now it no longer exists in the same way that it did before. Yeah. So there was this tool called Screen Hero, which I actually mm, started using... Yeah, at first at ThoughtBot, some other ThoughtBotter introduced me to it, and we would use it for pair programming. And I was like, "Oh, this is nice." And then yeah, uh, Slack kind of acquired it, and more or less ended up shutting the product down. Uh, and so there was this gap in the market. And I would ask my friends, I, was, I would ask ThoughtBotters and other developers, like, "What are you using now?" The screen here was gone, and no one had a good answer. And so after a while of this thing sort of staring me in the face, I was like, "We have to try to solve this need. There's there's clearly a hole in the market." Yeah, so we were we were heavily inspired by them in the early days. Hopefully, we've charted our own path now, but they were definitely the, the initial seed was, you know, let's do Screen Hero, but try to not get bought early or something. 
How did you, or did you feel like you captured a lot of the Screen Hero customers and reached them in those early days? I think so. The pitch for it was sort of shockingly easy because Screen Hero had kind of blazed this trail. Like, I would often just be like, oh, we're making a thing. Do you remember Screen Hero? And they go, oh, yeah, I love Screen Hero. I'd be like, yeah, we're going to try to do that. And they'd be like, nice, sign me up. So it for sure helped a ton. I have no idea what percentage of customers we converted. They were a pretty large success, so probably a small fraction. But it, it definitely like made the initial days much easier. Yeah. And then, like you said, COVID happened. COVID happened, yeah. I think we had been around for about a year when COVID hit. So we were getting our feet under us and we were already like the company was already growing at a pretty good rate and we were feeling pretty good about it. I don't think we had quite hit ramen profitable, but we were probably pretty close or like flirting with it. Yeah. The business like, I don't know, tripled or quadrupled in in a a matter of months. We had a few big customers that like just told everyone to start using Tuple. So we had like thousands and thousands of new users kind of immediately. So it was, it was a crazy time. Everything melted. Of course, we hadn't quite engineered for that much scale. We had a, a, a really rough day or so as we scrambled. But fortunately, uh, we got things under control and then had this like very nice tailwind. Because we started the company assuming that remote work would grow. We, would, we, we assume that there'll be more remote developers every year. And you know, it's probably maybe 5% of dev jobs are remote or maybe even less. But we expect to see this number creeping up. We don't think that trend will reverse. And so COVID just, like, it just yanked it you know, a decade in the future. But you haven't tripled or quadrupled your team size, have you? Uh, no. Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, we started as three and now we're 11. So kind of, (laughs) yeah, that's true. Expenses have not grown as fast as revenue, fortunately. That's good. That's basically what I was asking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're still a pretty small team. Actually. We have like only like four or five full-time engineers on the team at the moment, which is kind of wild because we are now, you know, we have three platforms to support Linux, Windows, and Mac. It's a pretty complicated app doing like real time streaming of audio, webcams, desktops, caring about a lot of little OS level intricacies. So I think we will be hiring more people soon, although we haven't said that for a long time. We, we sort of have always had a, a bit of a high or slow mentality to try to get the right team members and like feel a real pain before we hire someone into it. But we have been getting a bit more aggressive with hiring lately. Well, I really appreciate Tuple. I installed it when I first started working here at ThoughtBot and we have random pairings with everyone across the company. So I'll randomly get to meet someone halfway across the world who's working on similar projects. And I think they really enjoy that. I have a tool they like working to share what they're working on. So I want to thank you for that. And I'm curious about when you really started to scale during COVID, what were some of the technology architecture trade-offs you came across and how did you land? Where did you land with it? Well, we got fairly, I don't know if I was lucky, but we, for a long time, for years, even through COVID, maybe the first four years of the company, all tuple calls were purely peer-to-peer and there was no server that we owned intermediating things. This was like kind of one of the keys of like not having expenses to scale with revenue was we could have lots more calls happen and it wouldn't cost us bandwidth or server capacity. To this day still, for any calls with three or fewer participants, they're purely peer-to-peer. And this is nice for latency purposes because it just we can find the most direct path to the internet between two people. Uh, it's also nice from our cost perspective because we don't need to pay to send that data. And that was hugely useful as call volume went up immensely. Didn't have to worry too much about server load and didn't have to worry too much about bandwidth costs. Today, is there a central service that makes the initial connection for people? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is a, a signaling server. So when you, when you launch the app, you sign in and you see like, oh, who, which of my coworkers are online? 
So there is a, actually a Rails app that handles that. Well, increase, actually increasingly less than a Rails app. There's, we have now, I think it's a Go service that actually manages all those. I'm, I'm further and further from the code uh, every year. Some of the technical questions might be a little bit beyond me, or I might have slightly out-of-date info. But back to the architecture question for a second, we did a pretty big refactor when we decided to go from just being a Mac client to supporting other platforms, where we split out a cross-platform real-time communication engine written in C++ so that we could use the use that for all of the heavy lifting, all the managing of the connections and the, the tricky bandwidth estimation and all the stuff, and use that across different platforms. And so today, yeah, the cross-platform engine, and then on top of that is a like OS-specific layer for each of the operating systems that we support. So you mentioned you're less and less in the code these days. So what do you spend your time doing then? It's it's a mix of things. These days, it's, it's basically mostly... Just cocktails on the beach, right? Cocktail, yes, cocktails on the beach. Appearing on podcasts, trying to sound important and impressive. Yeah. Mostly product work. So right before this, uh, I just got off a call with some folks from the browser company. They are some of our first alpha users for our new Windows client. So I hopped on a call with them and, and like watched three of them install the product and inevitably run into some bugs and, you know, chatted through those with the engineer that was working on it, prioritized some stuff, made some decisions about what's coming up next and what we're going to ignore. So mostly product work these days. Uh, for the first five years of the company, I was CEO. So I was doing kind of everything, marketing and also hiring and also product. About two months ago, uh, I stepped out as CEO and one of my other co-founders, Spencer, stepped up. And so now my focus is narrowed to be mostly just product stuff and much less on the marketing or hiring side. Yeah, you mentioned that it was a little more comfortable to be an employee than to be a founder. I don't know if you could say more about that because certainly a lot of engineers are smart enough and capable enough to run their own company. But what really informed your choice there and do you regret it? <laughs> I definitely don't regret it. ThoughtBot was a close second in terms of wonderful professional experiences, but running my own thing has been the most interesting professional thing I've done by a big margin. It has also been more stressful. And Chad, I don't know if you remember, I think like maybe eight years ago, you tweeted something like, if you want to sleep well at night and like value that like peace of mind, like don't start a company or something. I've experienced that. But <laughs> a lot more, yeah, like waking up in the middle of the night worrying about things. It feels a little bit like the highs are higher, the lows are lower. Being an employee somewhere is like, if this company fails, I know I can go get another job. Right, like you're like you're a developer, you, you're extremely employable. But as the owner of the company, if the company fails, like a huge chunk of your net worth is gone. Like this thing you you poured your life into is gone. It's way more stressful and traumatic to have that happen, or have that threaten to be happen, or just imagine that happening. So overall, I have found the trade off to be totally worth it. It's awesome to to make your own decisions and chart your own path. And when it works, it can work in a way that being a salaried employee can't. So I'm, I'm happy with those trade-offs, but I think that is a good question for people to ask themselves as they consider doing something like this is like, is that the kind of trade-off that you want to make? Because it, is, it's, it has significant downsides for sure. I am a big fan of Tuple also. I love it. It makes it easy, especially remote work. You hit the jackpot with COVID and remote work. So kudos for that. <laughs> Were there anything, because I know from my previous companies, I bought over hopefully a lot more of the good stuff than the bad stuff. But were there anything that you learned because you're at ThoughtBot for seven years, were there anything that you're like, oh my gosh, I learned that and it's helped me till this day while I'm running my company? Yeah, quite a bit, actually. I think it would be hard to tease apart exactly which lessons, but I do. F so I ran Upcase for ThoughtBot and also FormKeep. So I got a chance to 
kind of run a small division of the company while still being a normal employee and like having not much of that risk. And I think that was a really wonderful opportunity for me to like practice the skills that I was interested in. Just like, how do you market a thing? How do you design a product and, and have it be good? How do you prioritize user feedback? There were a ton of lessons from those days that I feel like made me better at running our company when we actually took a shot at it. So there were like the specific things that I learned by the work I was doing there. But then just like, I mean, I think I am the programmer I am today because of like the weekly dev discussions that happened, like spending so much time with Joe Ferris and like trying to copy as much of his brain as possible, like really like imprinted on me as like a programmer. And also just like a lot of the sort of cultural things from my time at ThoughtBot of like, you should be sharing the things you're learning. Like writing blog posts is a great use of time. Like doing open source work is a great use of time. And maybe you can't directly trace how doing like working in public or sharing information benefits the company. It's hard to like attribute it from a marketing sense. But if you sort of have faith that in the large, it's going to work out, it probably will. That feels like a thoughtbot lesson to me and I think has surfaced really well. Where I recorded a, a weekly podcast for a long time called The Art of Product. Uh, I'm recording a new podcast called Hackers Incorporated with Adam Wathen of Tailwind fame. And I don't ever think like, hmm, how many new leads do we think we get per episode? And how many hours does that take? And what's the ROI? I just have this sort of reflex that I developed uh, from thoughtbot time of like, you should be putting stuff out there. You should be giving back. You should help other people. And that will probably help your business and make it work in the long term. That's a good lesson. <laughs> One of the other things, you know, while you were a host of Giant Robots, you were the first host. I remember, you know, encouraging you to be the the first host. And I think we talked about that in one of the episodes along the way. But we also transitioned the format a little bit, especially as you started to work on products here. You know, it was more about the building of those products and following along with those. And one of the things that sort of half jokingly defined, I think, your impact on a lot of products was pricing, experimenting with pricing, learning about pricing, increasing prices yep. more than people were maybe comfortable doing so. Mm -hmm. How has that worked out with Tuple pricing in particular? It's really hard to say. It's hard to know what like the other paths would have been through the world. We sort of decided from an early day, like the early days that we wanted to have like a fairly premium price. Like we wanted to be the product that was really good and was like a little bit annoyingly expensive, but you still paid for it because it felt worth it. And I think people could debate in both directions whether we nailed that or not. We have had a price increase that we ended up rolling back. We went like a little too far one time and said, you know what, I think we're a little bit over and we, we reverted that. Um, but I would say even today, we are still a fairly pricey product. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how the company has done. I can't prove to you that like if the price were half what it is, we would have you know better success um, or not. I think it'd be very hard to make the argument that if it was half, that you would have double the number of customers. Yeah, that's, that's probably not true. Not with the customers that you have, who are companies that will pay for products that they yeah. use as much as Tuple. Uh, yeah. I'm happy serving the kind of companies, and they end up being mostly tech companies, that really value developer happiness. When their developers come to them and they say, we don't want to pair over Zoom. We like this thing. It's better. It feels nicer to use. They say, okay, and they, and they buy the tool for them. There are places where that's not the case. And they say, we already have a thing that does screen sharing. You're, you're not allowed to buy this. We don't invest a lot of time trying to sell those people or convince them that they're wrong. And I'm pretty happy serving the sort of the first group. So you mentioned that you've still been podcasting. To be honest, I didn't realize you were starting something new. Is it live now? It is live now. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Where can people find that? Hackersincorporated.com. It's about the transition from developer to founder, which is kind of what we've been touching on here. 
yeah, hopefully the audience is developers who want to start something or have started something who are maybe a little bit further behind progression wise. And it's kind of like I have some lessons and Adam has some lessons and you know, we, we don't think that we're experts, but sometimes it's useful to just hear like two people's story and sort of see like what has what seemingly has worked for them. So we've been trying to share things there. And I think people have been finding it useful. I was going to ask you for a lesson. Let me give us a little sample about how would you advise someone who's built a product and wants to market it and it's targeted towards developers since you mentioned that previously as well. Yeah. In a way, the question already contains a problem. It's like, oh, I built the product. Now how do I market it? Is a little bit indicative of a very common failure mode for developers, which is, which is that. They sort of assume, okay, after you make the product, you then figure out how you're going to market it. And marketing is sort of a thing you layer on later on when you realize that just like throwing it on Twitter or product hunt didn't really work. When we started building Tuple. I was out there marketing it already. So I had two co-founders. So I, this is a, a luxury I had. My two co-founders were writing code and I was out doing stuff. I was recording podcasts. I was tweeting about things. I was making videos. I was giving conference talks and I was getting people to hear about our product well before it was done. And in fact, I was even selling it. I was taking pre-orders for annual subscriptions to the app while it was still vaporware. So I would say like you basically can't start marketing too early. If you start marketing early and no one really cares, well then you don't really have to build it probably. I would actually even go a little further and say like I started marketing Tuple before we had a product available. But in reality, I started marketing Tuple 7 or so years before that when I started publishing things through Thoughtbot. So like when I was traveling around giving talks about Ruby and when I was making screencasts about Vim and when I was running Upcase, I was over time building an audience. And that audience was useful for ThoughtBot. And it also was useful for me. So that when I left, I had uh, something like 10,000 Twitter followers or something, a few thousand people on a, on a mailing list. But there were a lot of developers that already sort of knew me and trusted me to make fairly good things. And so when I said, hey, I've made a new thing and it's for you, I really benefited from those years of making useful content and trying to be useful on the internet. And in the early days, we, even, we had people sign up and they would say, I don't even really think I'm going to use this, but I've learned so much from you over the years that I want to support you. So I'm going to, I'm going to pay for a, a subscription. I like your answer because I think the same thing when people ask me, like, because I'm an organizer for Women Who Code and I know all these great people from showing up for years in person, months over months. And so then people will ask, oh, how do I recruit more women in my company? I'm like, well, you got to start showing up like, now and do that for a couple of years and then maybe people will trust you. Right. So I, I like that answer. Totally. How has your relationship with Chad continued to grow since you left? Because seven years at the company is a lot. And it seems like you're still on really, really good terms and you're still friends. And I know that doesn't happen to every company. I mean, it was tough deciding to leave. I think like both of us felt pretty sad about it. That was the longest I'd ever worked anywhere. And I, I really enjoyed the experience. So I think it was tough on both sides, honestly. But we haven't kept that in, in that much touch since then. I think we've emailed a, a handful of times here and there. Uh, we're both sociable people and we sort of get each other and there's a long history there. So I think it's just easy for us to kind of drop back into a, a friendly vibe is sort of how I feel about it. Yeah. And the way I, I explain it to people, you know, when you're leading a company, which Ben and I both are, you put a lot of energy into that and to the people who are on that team. If you're doing things right, there's not really hard feelings when someone leaves. But you need to put in a lot of effort to keep in touch with people outside of the company and in a lot of energy. And to be honest, I, I don't necessarily do a good job as good a job with that as I would like, because it's a little bit higher priority to maintain relationships with than they're the people who are still at the bot and who are joining. 
I think one of the things that has been great about the show over the years is that we haven't been afraid to change the format, Mm -hmm. which I think has been important to keeping it going. So there's sort of, in fact, the website now is organized into seasons and I went back and recategorized all the episodes into seasons and when the seasons were made up of like sort of the format of the show or particular hosts. When we started, it was just an interview show and it was largely technical topics. And then we started the bike shed and the technical topics sort of moved over there, but it also went with your interests more onto the product and business side. Then you started working on products at ThoughtBot. So it started to uh, go even more in that. And then Chris joined you on the show. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of all about those topics. Yeah, that makes sense. I think if you don't let the hosts kind of follow their interests, they're going to probably burn out on on the thing. It's It's not fun to force yourself, I think, to record a podcast. Yeah. And then when you left... You know, I took over hosting and, and hosted by myself for a while, went back to the interview format, but then was joined by Lindsay for a little while. We experimented with a few different things, one interviews, but then we did a whole just under a year where we followed along with three companies. And each month we would have an interview episode where we talked to them, all three companies about the same topic. And then we also did an episode with just Lindsay and I talking about that topic and about what we learned from the startup companies that we're following along with for the year. And now we're back to interview, freeform, different guests, different topics. Seems like we're going to stick with that for a little while. But obviously, as Will and Victoria have said, like we'll probably change it again in some way, You know, a year, two years, three years from now. Yeah, and I'm definitely bringing my interest around DevOps and platform engineering. So you'll see more guests who have that focus in their background. And with that, sometimes my interview style is more, how do I ask a question that I can't read from your developer docs and that I might not understand the answer to? (laughs) That's kind of where I like to go with it. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's probably one of my favorite parts of my job here at ThoughtBot because I get to meet so many interesting people. And hopefully that's interesting to everyone else (laughs) and our guests. Totally. Yeah. Well, I just, I dramatically underestimated how awesome it would be to meet all kinds of cool people in the industry when I started the podcast. I didn't really connect in my head, like, wait a second, if I have an, a 45 minute conversation with like a lot of prominent, awesome people in our field, that's going to be really interesting and useful for me. So I think uh, it's, it's nice to be in the hosting seat. And it's so surprising how I'll meet someone at a conference and I'll invite them onto the podcast. And the way it winds up is that whatever we're talking about on the show is directly relevant to what I'm working on or a problem that I have. Mm-hmm. It's been incredible. And I really appreciate you for coming back for our 500th episode here. Ben, thanks very much again for joining us. And congratulations on all the success with Tuple and wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for being a continuing customer. I really appreciate it. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Next, we caught up with Chris Toomey, who had a run as co-host of the show with Ben throughout 2016. Hey there, thanks for having me. I know you joined the show and you were on it with Ben. Then you moved over to the bike shed, right? Yeah, so I had co-hosted with Ben for about six months. And then I think I was transitioning off of Upcase. Uh, and so that ended sort of the giant robots, let's talk about business podcast tour for me. And then I went back to consulting for a while. And at some point after Derek Pryor had left, um, I took over as a host of the bike shed. So I think there was probably like a year and a half, two year gap in between the various hostings. Are you doing any podcasting now? 
I'm not, and I miss it. It uh, it was a lot of fun. It was, uh, I, I think, an ideal medium for me. I'm not as good at writing. I tend to over-edit and overthink. But when, when you get me on a podcast, I just start to say what's in my head, and I tend to not hate it after the fact. So that combination I found to be somewhat perfect for me. But um, yeah, lacking that in my uh, current day-to-day. Well, what's been taking up your time since you left? I had decided it was time to sort of go exploring, try and maybe join a startup, that sort of thing. I was sort of called in that direction. Um, so I, just after I left ThoughtBot, I did a little bit of freelancing, but that was mostly to sort of keep the lights on and start to connect with folks and, and see if there might be an opportunity out there. Um, I was able to connect with a former ThoughtBot client, Sam Zimmerman, who was looking to start something as well. And so we put our act together and formed a company called Sagewell, um, which was trying to build a digital financial platform for seniors, which is a whole bunch of different complicated things to try and string together. So that was a wonderful experience. I was CTO of that organization. I think that ran for about two and a half years. Uh, unfortunately, Sagewell couldn't quite find the right um, sort of sticking point and unfortunately shut down a little bit earlier in this year. But that was, I would say, the lion's share of what I have done since leaving ThoughtBot. Uh, really wonderful experience. Got to learn a ton uh, about all the different aspects of building a startup. And I think somewhat pointedly learned that like it's messy, but I think I do like this startup world. So since leaving Sagewell, I've now joined a company called August Health, um, which has a couple of ex-ThoughtBotters there as well. And August is post their Series A. They're a little bit further along on their journey. So it was sort of a nice continuation of the startup experience for me. Getting to see a company a little bit further on, but still with lots of the good type of problems, lots of code to write, lots of product to build. So uh, excited to be joining them. And uh, yeah, that's, that's most of what's taken up my time these days. So I know at Sagewell, you made a lot of technical architecture team decisions. It was Rails in the back end, Svelte in the front end, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, that's correct. You know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Is there anything you learned along the way or given how things ended up that you would do differently? Sure. I, I was really happy with the tech stack that we were able to put together. Svelte was probably the most out there of the choices, I would say. But even that, it was sort of relegated to the front end. And so it was a little bit novel for folks coming into the code base. Most folks had worked in React before, but didn't know Svelte. They were able to pick it up pretty quickly. But Inertia.js was actually the core sort of architecture of the app, sort of connected the front end and the back end and really allowed us to move incredibly quickly. Uh, And I was very, very happy with that decision. Uh, We even ended up building our mobile applications, both for iOS and Android. So we had native apps in both of the stores, but the apps were basically wrappers around the Rails application with a technology similar to TurboLink's native, if folks are familiar with that. So sort of a web view layer, but with some native interactions where you want it. And so like we introduced a native login screen on both platforms so that we could do biometric login and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, most of the screens in the app didn't need to be differentiated between a truly native mobile app and what like a mobile web view would look like. So we leaned into that and it was incredible just how much we were able to do with that stack and uh, how quickly we were able to move and also how confidently we were able to move, which was a really nice thing. Having the deep integration between the back end and the front end really allowed a very small team to get a lot done in a short time. Does that code live on in any capacity? No. How does that make you feel? (laughs) Uh, It makes me feel very sad, I will say. That said, I mean, at the end of the day, code is in service of a business. And so like the code, there are, I think, probably a couple things that we might be able to extract and share. There was some interesting, we did a little, some weird stuff with the serializers and some like TypeScript type generation of the front end that was somewhat novel. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, code is in service of a business. And unfortunately, the business is not continuing on. So the code in the abstract is 
it's more, you know, the journey that we had along the way and, and the friends we made and whatnot. But I think for me, sort of the learnings of I really appreciate this architecture and will absolutely bring it to any new projects that I'm building from, you know, Greenfield moving forward. I'm curious what it was like to go from being a consultant to being a big player in the startup and being responsible for the business and the technology. How did that feel for you? Uh, I would say somewhat natural. I think the consulting experience really lent well to trying to think about not just the technical ramifications, but you know, what's the business impact? How do we structure a backlog and communicate about what features we want to build in what order? How do we you know scope a minimal MVP? All of those sort of things were, I think, really useful in allowing me to sort of help shape the direction of the company and be as productive of a engineering team as we could be. A lot of the projects you worked on at ThoughtBot were, if not for startups, helping to launch new products. And then a lot of the work you did at ThoughtBot too was on Upcase, which was very much building a business. Yes, I, I definitely um, found myself drawn in that direction. And part of like, as I mentioned, I, I seem to be inclined towards this startup world. And I think it's that like the intersection between tech and business is sort of my sweet spot. I work with a lot of developers who are really interested in getting sort of deeper into the technical layers or Docker and Kubernetes and orchestration. And I always find myself a little bit resistant to those. I'm like, I, I mean, whatever, let's just let's get something up there so that we can get users on it. And I, I'm so drawn to that side. You know, you need both types of developers critically. I definitely find myself drawn to that business side a little bit more than many of the folks that I work with and helping to bridge that gap and communicate about requirements and all those sort of things. So definitely the experience as a consultant really informed that and helped me have sort of a vocabulary and a comfort in those sort of conversations. How did Upcase come about? Because I know I've talked to numerous people who have gone through Upcase. I actually went through it and I learned a ton. So how did that come about? Uh, I think that was a dream in Ben Orenstein's eye. Uh, it started to stop at Learn many, many years ago. There was a handful of workshops that had been recorded. And so there were the video recordings of those workshops that ThoughtBot used to provide in person and collected those together and made them sort of an offering on the internet. I think, Chad, you and I were on some podcast episode where you sort of talked about the pricing models over time and how that went from like a high dollar one-time download to like $99 a month to $29 a month. And now Upcase is free. And so it's sort of one in this long journey, but it was an interesting exploration of building a content business of sort of really leaning into the ThoughtBot ideal of sharing as much information as possible uh, and took a couple different shapes over time. There was the weekly iteration. So the video series that would come out each week, as well as the like longer format trails and eventually some exercises and whatnot, but very much a organic sort of evolving thing that started as just a handful of videos and then became much more of a, a complete platform. I think I hit the high points there, but Chad, does that, that all sound accurate to you? Yeah, I led the transition from our workshops to learn, which brought everything together. And then I stepped away as product manager and Ben took it the next step to Upcase and really productized it into a SaaS sort of monthly recurring billing model and took it over from there. But uh, it still exists. And a lot of the stuff there is still really good. <laughs> yeah, I remain deeply proud of uh, lots of the videos on that platform. And I'm very glad that they are still out there and I can point folks at them. I love that idea that you said about trying to get as much content out there as possible or like really over communicate. I'm curious if that's also stayed with you as you've moved on to startups about just trying to get if that influence over like what you're doing and how you're promoting your work continues. I will say one of the experiences that really sticks with me is I had followed ThoughtBot for a while before I actually joined. 
So I was reading the blog and I was listening to the podcasts and uh, was really informing a lot of how I thought about building software. And I was so excited when I joined ThoughtBot to like finally see behind the curtain and see like, okay, so what are the insider secrets? And I was equal parts let down, actually not equal parts. I was a little bit let down, but then also sort of invigorated to see like, no, 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 it's really, it's all out there. It's like the blog and the open source repos and those sort of that, that really is the documentation of how ThoughtBot thinks about and builds software. So that was really foundational for me. But at the same time, I also saw sort of the complexity of it and how much effort goes into it, you know, investment time Fridays and, and those sort of things so much time, like a ThoughtBot blog post is not a trivial thing to put up into the world. So many different people were collaborating and, and working on it. And so I've simultaneously loved the sharing and where sharing makes sense. I've tried to do that, but I also recognize the deep cost and I think for ThoughtBot, it's always made sense because it's been such a great mechanism for getting the ThoughtBot name out there and for getting clients and for hiring developers. At startups, it becomes a really interesting trade-off of should we be allocating time to building up sort of a brand and a name and, and getting ourselves, you know, getting information out there versus should we be just focusing on the work at hand? And most organizations that I've worked with have biased towards certainly less sharing than ThoughtBot, but just not much at all. Often I'll see folks like, hey, maybe we should start a blog. And I'm like, okay, let's just talk about how much effort that actually looks like. And I wonder if I'm actually overcorrected on that, having seen you know the high bar that ThoughtBot set. I think it's a, a struggle. This is one of my <laughs> hot topics or, or spiels that, that I can go on. You know, most other companies, that kind of thing only helps. It, it only helps in hiring or the people being fulfilled in the work. But at most companies, your product is not about that. That's not what your business is. So having a more fulfilled engineering team who is easier to hire, don't get me wrong, there are advantages to that, but it doesn't also help with your sales. Yes. And at ThoughtBot, our business is totally aligned with the people and what we do as designers and developers. And so when we improve one, we improve the other, and that's why we can make it work that is marketing for the product that we actually sell. And that's not the case at a SaaS software company. Yes. Yeah, definitely. That resonates strongly. I will say, though, on the, the hiring side, hiring a ThoughtBot was always... There was, I wouldn't say a cheat code, but just if someone were to come into the hiring process and they're like, oh, yeah, I've read the blog, I listened to the podcast, this and that immediately you were able to skip so much further into the conversation and be like, okay, what do you agree with? What do you disagree with? Like, let's let's talk. But there's so much, because ThoughtBot put so much out there, it was easy to say like, hey, this is who we are. Do you like that? Is that is that your vibe? Whereas most engineering organizations don't have that. And so you have to try and like build that in the context of, you know, a couple hour conversations in an interview. And it's just so much harder to do. So again, I, I've leaned in the direction of not going anywhere near ThoughtBot's level of sharing, but the downside when you are hiring, you're like, oh, this is going to be trickier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the moments that stands out in my mind, and maybe I've told this story before on the podcast, but I'll tell it again. When we opened the New York studio, it was really fast growing and was doing a lot of hiring. And one of the people who had just joined the company a couple weeks before was doing an interview and rejected the person, was able to write an articulate reason why but it all boiled down to this person is you know not a fit for thoughtbot based on what they were able to describe i felt very confident with the ability or with the fact that they were able to make that call even though they had been here only a couple of weeks because they joined knowing 
who we were and what we stand for and what our culture and our values are and the way that we do things and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, that's definitely a huge benefit to us. I've certainly enjoyed that as well as someone who hires developers here and also in meeting new companies and organizations when they already know ThoughtBot. That's really nice to have that reputation there coming from my background of some really more scrappier startup kind of consulting agencies. But, uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your podcasting experience while you're here. So I know you're on both the Bike Shed and Giant Robots, which is the better podcast? So what's your, you have like a favorite episode or favorite moment or maybe like a little anecdote you can share from hosting? Uh, well, I guess there's like three different eras for me in the podcasting. So there's Giant Robots with Ben talking more about business stuff. And I think that was really useful. Um, I think it was more of a forcing function on me because I sort of, both Ben and I were coming on, we were uh, giving honest, transparent summaries of our like MRR and stats and how things had, were growing and acted as sort of an accountability backstop, which was super useful, but also just kind of nerve wracking. Uh, then when I joined the bike shed, the interviewing sequence that I did um, each week was just a new person that I was chatting with. And I sort of had to ramp them up on, hey, here's a quick summary on how to think about podcasting. Don't worry, it'll be great. Everybody have fun. But I was finding each of the guests. I was sort of finding a topic to talk about with them. So it was that ended up being a lot more work. And then the last three years chatting with Steph, that was by far my favorite. There was just such a natural back and forth. It really was just capturing the conversations of two developers at ThoughtBot and the questions we would ask each other as we hit something complicated in a piece of code or, oh, I saw this you know article about a new open source repository. What do you think about that? It was so much easier, so much more natural, and frankly, a lot, a lot of fun to do that. Uh, and two, I actually do have an answer to the favorite podcast episode, which is the first episode that Steph was ever on. Uh, it was before she actually joined as a co-host, but it was called What I Believe About Software. And it was... Just this really great, deep conversation about how we think about software. And a lot of it is very much like ThoughtBot ideals, I would say. But um, yeah, Steph came in and, and just uh, brought the heat in that first episode. And um, I remember just how enjoyable that that experience was. And I was like, all right, she, let's see if I can get her to hang out a little bit more. And thankfully, she was happy to join. What was your favorite position, I guess you could call it? Because uh, you said you liked the mixture of business and you know development so you've been in leadership as development director cto you've been web developer you've been over content like with the upcase what was your favorite position and thing you were doing and why was it your favorite the development director role feels like sort of a cheating answer but i i think that would be my answer because it contained a handful of things within it the like guys development director i was still working on client projects 3 days a week and then one day a week uh, was sort of allocated to the manager type tasks. So having one-on-ones with my team, sort of helping to think about strategy and, and whatnot. And then ideally still getting some amount of investment time, although the the relative amounts of those always flexed a little bit. Because that one sort of encompassed different facets, I think that's going to be my answer. And I think like some of what drew me to consulting in the first place and, and kept me in that line of work for seven years was the variety. You know, different clients, as well as even within ThoughtBot, different modes of working in podcasts or video or um, there was a boot camp that I taught a session of Metis, which that was a whole other experience. And so getting that variety was really interesting. And I think uh, as sort of a, a tricky answer to your question, the development director role as a singular thing contained a multitude. And so I think that was the one that would stand out to me. It's also the most, you know, the one that I ended on. So uh, <laughs> it might just be recency bias, but yeah. Oh, I love that. Is there anything else that you would like to promote on the podcast today? 
Uh, no, although I ask, as you asked the question, I feel like I should, I don't know, make some things to promote, get back into some, I don't know, content generation or something like that. But for now, now I'm, uh, you know, diving into the startup life and it, uh, it's a wonderful and engrossing way to do work, but it does definitely take up a lot of my my headspace. So it's uh, an interesting trade-off. But right now, uh, I don't know. If folks are online and they want to say hi, most of my contact information is readily available. So I would love to say hi to folks. Anyone that listened in the past or you know has any thoughts in the now would love to connect with folks. But otherwise, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. In 2017, I took over from Ben as solo host of the show but was joined by Lindsay Christensen as co-host in 2019. After some time away from ThoughtBot, Lindsay is back with us, and we sat down to catch up with her. So why don't you tell me about your current role with ThoughtBot? I am currently supporting with marketing and business development at ThoughtBot, as well as working as a marketing consultant for ThoughtBot clients. Great, and I understand that you had worked with ThoughtBot many years ago, and that's when you were also came on as a co-host of Giant Robots. Is that right? Yeah, a couple of years ago. I left ThoughtBot in 20, spring of 2021. And I forget how long my stint was as a co-host of Giant Robots, but over a year, maybe a year and a half, two years. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you started in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. And Chad and I were co-hosts, I think similar to the setup today, in which sometimes we hosted together and sometimes we were conducting interviews separately. Mm -hmm. And then we sort of introduced a, a second season where we followed along with a batch of companies over the course of the entire season. And that was fun. And we learned a lot. And it was, it was nice to have consistent guests. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really liked that format. I don't know. They almost were like more than guests at that point. They were just like other co-hosts mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> uh, that we could rely on week in, week out to check in with them as they're working on early stage companies. So every time we checked in with them, they had usually had some new exciting developments. I really liked that idea. How did y'all come up with that? I'm not sure. I, th I think... A few years before I had taken over hosting of the show, and I, I forget, I, my memory maybe is that I went to Lindsay and said, you know, let's do something different, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Does that match your memory, Lindsay? Yeah, I think there were two main drivers. One was, I think you were feeling like you were having similar conversations mm -hmm. uh, in the interviews every time. Like you couldn't get to a certain depth because every time you were interviewing someone, you were doing like the, well, tell me your founding story. Uh, and you know, how did you raise funding? It kind of got a little bit repetitive. And then on the side, the few we had done together, I think we both really enjoyed. So we were thinking like, what's a format in which the two of us could co-host together more regularly mm -hmm. yeah because i'm a pleasure to talk to <laughs> i think something you were like i need to talk to Lindsay more now i'm just gonna pick up some of it what is your pot your hosting style what, how would you describe your approach to hosting a podcast i mean obviously it's a podcast about products and business i think as a marketer 
I am, you know, drawn a lot to the marketing side. So tending to ask questions around go to market audience users, that's always just like a particular interest of mine. But then also like the the feelings. I love asking about the feelings of things, you know. How did it feel when you started? How did it feel when you made this tough decision? Um, so that's another thing I think I notice in my interviews is asking about some of the emotions behind business decisions. And I like hearing about how people felt at the time and then how they felt afterwards <laughs> and like how people around them supported each other and that type of thing. That's really fun. Um, I'm curious to hear from your marketing background and having to do with podcasts, like some founders, I think get advice to just start a podcast to start building a community. But I'm curious on your thoughts about like, how does podcasting really play into like business and marketing development for products? Oh, yeah, it's become a, a definitely like a standard channel in B2B these days, I feel like that is pretty typical for a company to have a podcast as one way that they engage their audience and their users. In marketing, you're really vying for people's attention and people's attention span is getting shorter and shorter. So like, if you have an ad or a blog, you're getting like seconds, maybe minutes of someone's attention. And whereas something like a podcast offers a, a unique channel to have someone's undivided attention for, you know, 30 minutes, an hour. And if you're lucky, you know, checking back in week over week. So it became a really popular method. That said, I think you're probably also seeing the market get saturated with podcasts now. Um, so some diminishing returns and, you know, as always kind of looking for you know, what's the next way, what, what's the next thing that people are interested in and ways to, to capture their attention. What is the next thing? I don't know. Back to micro content, TikTok videos. <laughs> I was going to say TikTok. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 10, 10, 30 seconds. What can you communicate? I see people live streaming on Twitch a lot for coding and developer products. Yeah, I think we've seen some of that too. We've been um, experimenting more at ThoughtBot with live streaming as well is as as another interesting mechanism. But yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's another form of like community and how people engage with their communities is always evolving. It's always evolving and sometimes it's not. Sometimes people just do want to get in a room together too, which is always interesting. What has been, in your experience, the good, the bad? Like, how do you feel about the way that it has shifted? Because I think you started in like 2000, like kind of earlier, 2000, 2005, something around there. And it was totally different than now, like you're saying, like, because I feel like, you know, Channel 5, 30 second ad, you know, with some of the marketing, depending on what you were doing to now to where you're like, paying influencers to advertise your product? Are you doing ad or is more social media driven and tech driven? What has been your opinion and feeling on the way that it has grown and evolved? Marketing in general? Yeah, I graduated college in 2005 and started my marketing career. And yeah, you could like actually get people to click on banner ads back then. Uh, which is pretty remarkable. Forgot about better ads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. As In order for myself to not 
just get too frustrated. I think I've got to like view it as a game kind of what new things are we going to try? You know, what do we see work? But it really, it can really depend. And I've always been in, in B2B side of things and consumer, I'm sure has its own kind of evolution uh, around how people engage and how they consume content and buy products. But in B2B, you know, it can really depend on industry too. You know, I'm working with a client right now in the senior living space, and they're really big in in in-person conferences. So that's how people consume, get a lot of their information and make connections and learn about new products. So it's been interesting to work in an an industry um, that what might be considered like a little bit more old school channels are still effective. And then just thinking about how you weave in the new channels with the existing ones without ignoring them. They might get information in conferences, but they're still a modern human who will then, you know, search online to learn more, for example. That reminds me of a a phrase I like to say, which is that like technology never dies. You just have more of it. There's just more different options and more different ways to do things. And some people are always, you know, sometimes (laughs) you have to be flexible and do everything. So tell us more about what you did in between your, you know, after you left ThoughtBot, what did you do? I was heading up B2B marketing for a company called Flywire, uh, which is headquartered in Boston, but is a global company now. And they were just kind of starting their B2B business unit, which as I mentioned, B2B is my personal specialty. I had been connected to their CMO through the Boston startup community. And yeah, I was helping them kind of launch their go-to-market for B2B. The industries they were in before, they got their start in higher education uh, and then expanded in healthcare and found a niche in luxury travel. And then we were figuring out the B2B piece. But yeah, I was there for about a year and a half. They actually went public the second week I was there, which was an interesting experience. I knew they were like on that journey, but it was kind of funny to be there the second week and people were like, congrats. And I was like, well, I definitely didn't have anything to do with it because I just finished my onboarding, but (laughs) thank you. One of the things that really impressed me when you joined ThoughtBot was the way in which you learned about who we were and really internalize that in a way where you were then able to pretty um, meaningfully understand our market, our positioning in the market, and come up with new strategies for us. I assume that's that's something you're good at in general. (laughs) How do you approach it? How did you approach it when you joined Flywire, for example? And how was it the same or different than how you approached ThoughtBot? Ooh, yeah, that's a good question. And I I appreciate that that comment because it's difficult. But I think, yeah, with any new organization that I'm joining, you know, I think starting out with your kind of mini listening tour of your key stakeholders across, you know, the different departmental focuses to get a sense of what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, essentially like, you know, the SWOT analysis, kind of trying to fill in your own mind map of a SWOT analysis of where the the company is, what are the major hurdles you're facing, where are people trying to go, what have they tried that worked, what have they tried that failed, 
But then like, I think for the culture component, I think a part of that maybe is like feel and maybe something that I I do have a knack for. Again, maybe this is like, you know, emotional intelligence quotient where it's like, you know, but it's the, the company, you know, who is this company? What is important to them? How do they work and go about things? I mean, ThoughtBot's certainly very unique, I think, in that arena in terms of being like a really value driven company and one where especially like marketing and business work is like distributed across teams in a really interesting way. You know, I'm sure the fact that it fascinated me and was something I could get passionate and get behind was something that also helped me understand it quickly. I was excited that, or it was sort of a coincidence because I had reached out to you and without realizing that you had left Flywire and Kelly, who had been doing a combined sales and marketing role, was going on parental leave. And so it was fortuitous <laughs> that you were able to come back and help us and provide coverage while Kelly was out. Yeah, it definitely felt like a stars aligned moment which, you know, I'm pretty woo-woo, so I believe in <laughs> I believe in that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, it was wild. It really did feel like your email came out of nowhere. And I you know, I mentioned it obviously to my partner and my friends and they were like, "Oh, he definitely knows like that you left your last company." And I'm like, "I actually don't think he does. <laughs> I actually don't think he does." Um, yeah, and then we started chatting about me coming back to help. And it was great. ThoughtBot makes it hard to work anywhere else. So (laughs) I was happy to come back. I missed the team. And one of the exciting things, and you've mentioned it, is you're not just doing marketing for ThoughtBot now. Uh, We have started to offer your services to our clients. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. And it's something I'd started thinking about I had decided to take some time off between Flywire and my next thing. And I started thinking about doing marketing consulting and had always, as I'm doing that, I'm thinking a lot about how ThoughtBot does consulting and, you know, wanting to emulate something like that. So I started to back up at ThoughtBot. That wasn't part of the plan. I was just going to, you know, fill in for Kelly and help with marketing things. But then, you know, a good opportunity arose to work on a client. And I was really excited when, you know, Chad, you and I chatted through it, we came to the conclusion that this was something worth exploring under the, you know, ThoughtBot umbrella. And it's been a really great experience so far. And we now have brought on another client now. And if you're listening and need early stage B2B marketing support, reach out to Lindsay at ThoughtBot.com. Definitely. And uh, Lindsay's pretty good. So you're gonna, you're gonna like it. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna like the way you look. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I can even feel your presence here, you know, coming back because even like, you know, the market, where is that now? And some of the suggestions that, you know, you've been helping us, for example, like, I do a lot of React Native and you're like, hey, you know, blog posts have done a lot of traction, you know, let's get some more uh, blog posts out in the market to help with the traffic and everything. So the question I have with that is like, thank you for even suggesting that because it's like those little things that you don't even think about is like, oh yeah, blog posts, that's a 
easy transition to help the market, clients, things like that. But with the market the way it is, what has been your experience working during this time with the market? I don't know if you want to call it struggling, but whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it that is doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the economy is difficult now. We also went through a really tough spot when I was here last time during COVID. You know, we had faced a major company challenge. And I mean, I'll let Chad speak to it, but I, I would imagine it's probably one of the, the bigger like economic inflection points that you faced. Would you say that? Yeah, definitely. Um, The thing about it that made it worse was how quickly it happened. You know, it was something that you didn't see coming. And then, you know, about 40% of our business went away in a single month. That's Mm -hmm. the kind of thing that was a real shock to the system. I think the thing that made it difficult too was then the aspects of COVID where we were no longer able to go into our studios. We were all working remotely. We were isolated from each other. And so that made executing on what needed to be done in order to make the company survive additionally challenging. Yeah. So I think like going through that experience also and seeing how the team and the leadership team rallied together to get through it and then, you know, ultimately. And I think in 2021, 2022 have like really good years. That was a really positive experience and something I'll definitely take with me for a while is just like keeping a cool head and just knowing you have like really smart, talented folks with you working on it and that you can get through it and just like doing some, I mean, we, we relied on what we did best, which was like design thinking using design exercise to think about like how we might reorganize the company or what other services we might try launching or how might we repackage you know larger services into smaller more palatable services um, when people have like kind of tighter purse strings so that was like a great educational experience and I think something we just Continue to do now. Be open to change. Be open to changing how we package services, what clients we go after, and coming at it with like a an agile, experimental mindset and, and try to find out what works. I really appreciate that. And it aligns now with the new service we've developed around you and the marketing that you provide. And I'm curious because I've had founders come up to me who say they need help with marketing or they need to like figure out other marketing plans. So say you've met a founder who has this question, like what questions do you ask them to kind of narrow down what it is they really need and really want to get out of a marketing plan? I've been thinking about this a lot recently. And like, obviously, I see other marketing leaders in the market Marketers like to talk about what they do on LinkedIn. So I get to, <laughs> I read a lot about different people's approaches to this. And some people kind of go in and are like, okay, this is what you need. This is how we're going to do it. And they start executing on it. And I, I really do take a very collaborative approach with founders. I think they're, uh, especially in early stage, they're your most important asset in a way. And a lot of their intuition around the market and the business, you know, it's gotten them to where they're at. And so I think 
starting from the point of like taking what they view as priorities or challenges and then helping them better explore them or understand them with my own marketing experience and expertise to narrow in on work that's going to be valuable for them is kind of where my starting point with with early stage companies. Again, a little bit of that like listening tour kind of attitude of like, what do you think is important? And there's probably data points behind that. And then helping you as a company frame that into, you know, what's going to be the most valuable, like, is it an awareness campaign or a lead generation campaign or a content strategy? Do we actually need to take a look at the data you have and spend a little bit of effort cleaning that up so that we understand what we're working with better? Is it sales enablement? You know, do you have existing salespeople and but maybe they're they're struggling or not don't have unified tools and messaging that they're using. That's how I, I kind of first approach it with, with the founder very much kind of in lockstep. I appreciate that little preview of what your what your services would be like. And I always really appreciate when you help me with my marketing plans around our mission control team and platform engineering and how to really refine our message and make sure it reaches the right people. Yeah, I think another thing I used at ThoughtBot the previous time that I've taken with me to Flywire and now with clients is like the idea of like mini briefs and working on them with the key stakeholder, whether that's you, the head of a you know a business unit or a founder, which is like, let's just take the however long, 30 minutes to talk about who's the audience, what's our goal. You know, what are the elements that might help us achieve that goal? What are you know some of the metrics that we might use to measure whether or not we were successful in reaching that goal? And it sounds real, really basic, but a lot of people can skip it. And I think then there's confusion around who you are targeting or people have different ideas in mind of like what you are actually trying to achieve. I like that. And to pivot a little bit, I wonder if you have any thoughts on our podcast here at Giant Robots, what do you think the benefit of it is to ThoughtBot, actually? I think it's been a brand builder and a way to, again, like another channel to engage with our, our audience. It's been so long standing now. You know, I talked about how most companies have a podcast now, but this is what the 500th episode, right? over years and years, which is really impressive that it's been going that long. So it's it's a way to bring the, the brand to life. I think one of my first insights coming into the ThoughtBot team is, you know, as a consulting organization, what when I interviewed clients about what they loved about ThoughtBot, I thought they were going to say that they ended up with amazing products. And they did. They did say that. They said they ended up with amazing products. But I said, you know, what was the biggest benefit or what stood out to you the most? And they all said it was the people. You know, they loved the people. They loved learning from ThoughtBotters. They were like, you know, teachers and mentors and so smart, but also like very kind and helpful. So when you think about it like that, podcasts or videos... And ways you're, you're able to like better see and hear and feel the person on the other side is a really great way of you know continuing to make that that connection with folks. 
I love that answer. I wish we had little heart emojis we could share like in Google Meets with Zencaster. Um, so what do you think? Maybe this is a question for everyone on here too that we're asking is like, where do you think we should go with the podcast? What should we change? What should we think about for future episodes? I think you should ask the listeners if possible. We we tried the in the past surveying. It's it's hard because you don't have like necessarily an email list of listeners, but there does tend to be some overlap of like our newsletter subscribers with podcast listeners. So yeah, I'd go I'd go straight to the audience and just learn learn more about what ask them what they they care about and what they want to learn because at the end of the day it's really for them providing value for them and something they they want to come back to listen to week after week. Oh, when we've done the surveys in the past, we've had very few people <laughs> respond. So you can always email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. If you have feedback on the show, questions for people, questions for the hosts, or opinions on, you know, who make a great guest or a direction we should take the show, uh, all of that is is super valuable. And, and we definitely would take it to heart. Yes, please send me your feedback. I will read your emails and incorporate it into the show. So that'd be great. I wonder, um, Lindsay, do you have any questions for us? How do y'all like hosting the podcast? <laughs> How's it going? I feel like I'm starting to find my style and the way that it works best for me. So that's exciting. I do want to engage more with the listeners. So that's one thing that I'm trying to brainstorm on what's the best way to do that. Also, you know, inviting just different types of guests, trying to think through what's some different type, a different angle that we can invite for the podcast. So, but as far as the, how do I like uh, doing the podcast? I really enjoy it. It's been, it's pushed me out of my comfort zone, uh, but it was, it was a good thing for me. So I'm really enjoying it. How long have you been doing it? Well, a little over a year. So I think I started after I went on parental leave with my youngest child. And then when I came back, I took a couple weeks and then I started. So yeah, about a about a year, a little over a year. That's fun. What's your favorite part about doing it? I love talking to the guests and I love learning uh, like people's story stories. And so that has been the most exciting thing for me, like, because especially with the founders, like it's not easy to be a founder, but <laughs> people they go all out and they make a difference. And even through the heartache and the pain and just all different levels, but they're willing to endure it because they believe in their product. They believe it's going to make a difference. So I think the stories, the stories and the people meeting new people and hearing their stories is what I love. And I'm the same as well. I've been on the show for about a year now. And the first episode I recorded with Chad, I think afterwards he said, Oh, you didn't ask any questions. <laughs> like you're too quiet. <laughs> but then I, I think I got a hang of it. And now I really like making people feel comfortable and opening up about their story and, and hearing, yeah, like the emotions and what it really felt like to go through that. Because, you know, if it's interesting for me to hear that, then I think that our audience will also appreciate it. And to feel like you're not alone, right? To build that community and hear those same stories and people going through similar things. 
yeah, some of the guests that we've had on have just been really incredible. And they're people who I admire in the industry and to have them on the show and to, to be a part of it has been really special. Yeah, that's cool. That reminds me another kind of underlying thing I love about the podcast and the, the interviewing. It's also low key, like market research, <laughs> which is interesting, like better understanding the types of people we provide services to and their kind of drivers and challenges. So there's like an interesting element there. And uh, yeah, at the end of the day, you get really interested and into it and you're just like having a conversation with them probably makes for the best kind of episode. Right. And then afterwards, you have to like pace around the room to like decompress because <laughs> you're operating at like such a, a level. Um, at least that happens to me. I don't know if I met anybody else. No, totally. I would also if we had like a an episode scheduled, and then it got like rescheduled at the last second, I would find I had all this like pent up energy that my body was like preparing me to like go into the interview. Yeah, sometimes I have to get hyped, like you got to do some movement right before because you got to get get into the zone. But I'm curious, Chad, this is, you know, you've been a host for a number of years now, too. Like, how do you feel about the podcast? Do you still like hosting it? No, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I have taken a little bit of a break recently from the ongoing continuous hosting because I was really busy and it was hard to uh, create the time and dedicate the time to it. But I really like hosting the show. I love talking to different people and learning about their stories. I also really like the episodes where it's a able to be more of a conversation uh, with people. And um, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. We've seen also some trends in like the episodes where Chad will talk about like the business of ThoughtBot perform well too. Cause I know there's like a lot of folks who listen who are also own agencies or consultancies and always appreciate Chad's transparency around how we run ThoughtBot. That's interesting. And yeah, I think one of the ways that we've been experimenting with getting the episodes to be more conversational is to have more than one host in the episode. So, uh, Chad or Lindsay, if you're ever wanting to rejoin an episode or invite a founder on and be it one of the co-hosts. You're always welcome. I'm always down. I love talking. That actually, that does remind me, we were thinking we've been doing the live streams through um, that cover ThoughtBot's new startup incubator. Uh, so we have the second session currently in progress, but repurposing some of those live streams into like mini giant robots episodes. So that may, that may happen soon. We may do a little bit of that and then give some insight into uh, what it's like week in, week out uh, for the founders going through the startup incubator. It's super, super interesting if you're a startup nerd like me. That would be great. Yeah, we did an episode with Agnes for the first incubator round. And I think that was really interesting. And something we've been experimenting with a little bit is having that diverse group of founders. So there's founders from companies who have the company has managed to survive and excel and they've been around for 10 years or so. But then there's other people who are just starting out and like hearing those stories too. And like the things they're thinking about and what challenges they're facing has been super interesting. Anything else you'd like to promote, Lindsay? Um, hire me for all your marketing consulting needs. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. It was great to catch up with everyone in celebration of our 500th episode. Thank you to Ben, Chris, and Lindsay 
But most of all, thank you to you, all of our listeners. We make the show, but you make the show possible, and we really appreciate it. You can subscribe to the show and find notes along with a complete transcript for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks so much for listening, and here's to the next 500 episodes. Did you know ThoughtBot has a referral program? If you introduce us to someone looking for a design or development partner, we will compensate you if they decide to work with us. More info on our website at tbot.io slash referral, or you can email us at referrals at thoughtbot.com with any questions.